From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this week I want to share with you some toys of mine, something that has fascinated me now for almost 20 years. It is a thesis about the birth of English, for one thing, that some people have been developing for a while. It's considered either controversial or ridiculous, and like many such things, it is actually worthy to hear these people out, even if it turns out that what they're saying is not true, because it very well might. And what this is about is something that I've often alluded to on this show, which is that English is odd. I've written a piece that you can find online about how English is a very odd language as the 7,000 languages of the world go. English is weird, and it's not only English, as you might guess, it's English and its friends, English and its sisters. There is this Indo-European language family that bestrides Europe and Iran and India. And, of course, the family has subfamilies, and one of them is called Germanic. And so you've got your German, you've got your English, you've got your Dutch, you've got Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish, and you've got some others. But Germanic in general is a weird subfamily if you look at the other ones in Indo-European. It feels very normal to us the way English works. And if you've taken some German, that may seem harder than English, but still quite normal. But that's because we're fish that don't know that we're wet. If you look and you cast a, a broader net, Germanic is weird. There are all these words in Germanic. By some estimates, it's one in three. By other estimates, it's half. Half of the words in Germanic only are in Germanic. So you can't find the original Indo-European word that spread all over the place. They're these words that only Germanic has. Suspiciously many. Germanic grammar is weird in certain ways, different from all the others. And more to the point, in some ways, there isn't enough of it. There's something oddly streamlined about Germanic compared to most of Indo-European. So what seems normal to us is comparatively odd. And many linguists and absolutely excellent and authoritative ones think that this difference in Germanic languages is just an accident. And you know, accidents do happen. But some linguists think that there's a more interesting reason than accident for why Germanic languages, including English, are so odd as Indo-European languages go. And as the years go by, I am increasingly compelled to the extent that it is my job to share with you in this venue the sorts of things that kind of prick up my ears. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So here is the basic story. The idea is that Germanic goes back to some original language. We call it Proto-Germanic. We can't know what its speakers would have called it. But there was this original language that became German and English and Swedish, etc. And that would have been spoken probably in that little neck of Denmark, or maybe a little southwards of that, in, let's say, about 500 BC. So that's where Proto-Germanic 
would have started. And in the meantime, there is a thesis that that language was profoundly impacted by invading or at least imposing people from the Near East, people from way down where there is today Lebanon and Syria and Israel. Specifically, it would be the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were one of many people in that region, and they would have spoken a Semitic language, i.e. a language related to what we know today as Hebrew and Arabic, and if we want to go further afield, Aramaic, and cross the Red Sea, and it's Amharic in Ethiopia. But they spoke a Semitic language. And we know what they spoke because they wrote it down, because they actually were the first people who grabbed the alphabet when it was very quietly and scrappily invented, probably by mercenary soldiers in Egypt. The Phoenicians took it and made it into something that they used basically to write down business-related things. They weren't writing epics. They weren't writing the Grapes of Wrath. But they were writing. And so the Phoenicians are the ones who end up spreading the alphabet throughout the world. In any case, more to the point, the Phoenicians were big travelers. They did not like to stay home. The Phoenicians started ruling the roost where they were probably in about 1100 BC. And they didn't just stay there. They sailed. They traded. They got themselves around what was then considered by people like them, the world. Throughout the Mediterranean, they keep on going westward. And of course, once you get out to where there's no more land, well, you might start going up into like Spain, and they kind of hovered around the coast. They traded. They brought things back. They were great intermediaries. Now, in the Middle East, they had their cities, like, like Tyre and Byblos, or Carthage that you hear so much about on the north coast of Africa. That is Phoenician or Punic territory. But they sailed. And you know, there is evidence that they sailed not only to roughly Spain and Portugal, which is what we have absolutely concrete evidence for them doing, but there's evidence that they kept going. And they went all the way up to northern Europe and past what's now Germany, and that they actually would have gone all the way to that part of Denmark. One little piece of evidence is that they got people amber. If you got some amber in Greece, if you got some amber in what is today Lebanon, well, the amber, as often as not, came from up in that Baltic, northern European region. They had a lot of amber, and amber is pretty. I think of amber as preserving bits of dinosaur tails and insects and things like that. But amber is also just gorgeous. You kind of want to bite it. Big amber trade. Well, they always seem to have it. Well, how'd they get it? Well, it would seem that they had some sort of connection to northern Europe. That in itself doesn't mean that they sailed all the way up there and got it, because there were ways of trading amber just across the European continent. But the fact that they had so much amber is one of a great many things. It's like the spokes in a wheel. An argument is about various things that all seem to point in the same direction. What about that amber? But more to the point, it's about the language. What is wrong with Germanic? Why is it so odd. Well, what is this case that these people came from the Near East and sailed all the way up around Europe? And then understand what the thesis is. The idea is that speakers of Phoenician settled in somewhere in this part of Denmark, and there was long-term settlement 
where speakers of this Phoenician and speakers of this thing we called Proto-Germanic mixed to the point that many people were basically speaking Proto-Germanic in Phoenician to an extent. This is what we linguists call language contact theory. The idea being that Proto-Germanic ended up being really stamped by this other way of being a language because there would have been these settlements where the Phoenicians ruled the roost and their language seemed to be the cool one and it was the one that people switched to. So the Proto-Germanic ended up being profoundly affected. It kind of wanted to be cool and became more like Phoenician. What is the evidence that that happened given that there is no archaeological evidence, partly because what would have been the shore back then has since become underwater, so we can't really dig up where these settlements probably would have been. Well, one of the things is words. So, as I said, so many words in Germanic languages don't trace back. They just pop up all of a sudden. It's about one in three, and that's a conservative estimate. Now, Some of the experts just don't give a damn about that, and they have other things to do. They have bigger fish to fry, and that is perfectly understandable. Sometimes you just don't give a damn. You know what I don't care about, for example? I do not care about outer space. I remember when, you know, there was the Apollo landing, and everybody was so excited, and they actually rolled in a little black and white TV into my classroom we were supposed to watch. I didn't care. I'm more interested in what's going on here. Astrophysics, I respect it, but I do not care about Saturn. And, you know, the analogy is not precise, because the people who don't care that there's so many foreign words in Proto-Germanic, they don't care because they figure that it just must be chance, that we just, we can't know everything. Okay, but Really, it's so many words that maybe there's some sort of explanation. And what's interesting is that if you look at the words that don't trace back, they seem to coalesce upon meaning certain kinds of things. So it's things like sea, out in the sea, ship, strand, sail. So those sorts of things. It's war things like sword. It's fish. Where does carp come from? Where does eel come from? There's no Slavic word eelski. That's just one of these things where only Germanic languages have it. Then there are these formal things like knight. There's no word knightski either. It's these things like knight. It seems as if there were these people who came from the sea and who kind of lorded it over these people and ended up imposing, probably not consciously, but imposing their words, kind of like with French and English. And so the Normans come over, and all of a sudden, we have all these words from French, and they tend to be the formal things, things about art, words like pleasure. Or we talk about the cow that's, you know, shitting all over the place, but we eat beef. We talk about the pig that's intelligent but doesn't smell good, but we eat pork, Pork and beef are French words. Well, it seems like maybe these Phoenicians were doing the same thing. They come from the sea, and so they contribute those words. Then you have things like night. You have things referring to the army and stuff like that. Remember C, show before last, where I talked about how there's a word for C that is C, and then a word for C that's something like French la mer. Well, C is in Germanic languages, but it stops there. And, you know, it's kind of time for a song. And I'm thinking about the sea, and I'm thinking about people out in the middle of the sea. 
And I've got to go really obscure. This is Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart. This is from a Connecticut Yankee. This is from the revival of that show in 1943, which means that this is one of the very first cast albums. This is a song I've always loved called On a Desert Island with Thee. For those of you who care, this is Chester Stratton singing. Oh, for a year on a desert island with thee out in the sheer middle of the sea we'll sing tra-la wouldn't we be happy and gay with thy mama many miles away in the morning air murmur a blessing first we'll eat then we will dress if it's fair we'll be caressing if it rains we'll caress knows next year what the population will be out in the middle of the sea. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In any case, it's as if these words were imposed by some group that came from abroad. And there are all sorts of words like this. This is the thing, where you can trace them to Phoenician-type words. It's the funniest thing. So, for example, one of those in Germanic is folk. Folk is only in the little German Germanic collection. Now, in Germanic, folk Now it means like the people in English, but it starts as referring to a division of an army. And only later did it come to mean just like a tribe of people or something like that. So if you look at all the Germanic languages and you look at their words that are like folk or something like it, you can tell that the first word, like in that neck of Denmark, was fulka. Now what's interesting is that in Semitic languages, if you trace them back in the same way, Then a root for to divide, as in a division, making a division, it wasn't fulka, but what they had was pulch. Now, this is something about how Semitic languages work, where it's that you have to think about the consonants. The vowels change for all sorts of reasons, but if you're talking about dividing, if you're talking about a division, if you're talking about people being divisive, etc., what you know is that it's going to have the consonants p, l, ch. So, imagine there's this first word, p, l, ch. The p becomes a f. That happens all the time. In Germanic languages, something received as a p became a f, regularly. That's something weird about Germanic. It's called Grimm's Law. So, Latin has pater, we have father. P goes to f. Popcorn goes to fopcorn, so to speak. So, here's the Semitic p, l, ch, and then p goes to f, then the l stays l, ch becomes k. What a massive change. And so, it seems that that folk word, which doesn't seem to have any other source, it's rather oddly like this Semitic word for division, both of them 
meant division. You find all sorts of things like that. And so, for example, another one that's an orphan is maiden. Old English, it's magden or mech. Now, if you look at Old Norse, that's the language that became Swedish and Norwegian and Danish. It was not magden, it was magav. In earlier German, it was magad, and so on. So, the Proto-Germanic form, that word that they would have used in Denmark, it would have been magath. That would have been the word for a little maiden. Now, what's interesting is that in Semitic, you do the same thing in the Semitic languages, and the word is machat. And so, imagine you have a word machat, and imagine if that was brought to this little Danish peninsula, Machat becomes magath. Really easy. Ch goes to g. I mean, ch might as well be g. Machat. Machath. Of, of course. Yeah, that's perfectly normal. Now, I could go on with those, as you can imagine. It wouldn't be thousands of words. It's not a huge collection. But it's a great many more than a few. But you still have to be careful because you can take any two languages and find cute little pairings like that. Some people have said that any two languages will even have as many as three, four, or five percent of words where you can pull that sort of thing. In Japanese, the word for to hang down is sagaru, in other words, to sag. Does that mean that English and Japanese are related? Well, they clearly aren't. The word for to eat is taberu. Anybody who learns Japanese thinks, well, that seems like table. It's a complete accident. You never know, but the thing is, With these little word parallels between Proto-Germanic and Semitic languages like Phoenician, it's even the more picky, specific, idiosyncratic things. So, for example, in Biblical Hebrew, there was a word, eber. That meant to cross, eber. Now, there was another word that used those same consonant sounds, the er, the er, and that meant sure. So, the consonants stay the same, you mess around with the vowels, and either you get to cross, or you get sure. Get this. In Old English, ofer was the word both for sure and for over, as in the direction that you go when you're crossing. In German, you've got ufer for sure, and über for over. So, maybe that's an accident that you have this over word in a Semitic language like Biblical Hebrew that has those two meanings and then something that sounds just like it in Germanic. But when those things start to pile up, you start thinking, wow, maybe Phoenicians came up and imposed some of their words on these innocent speakers of a language that originally would have had other words for those things that we will now never know. And since we're about the sea, I am now thinking of something else. And it is Conrad the Sailor. He's a cat. We're in the world of Looney Tunes, and there's a song called Song of the Marines from a Warner Brothers film musical nobody needs to see. But in Conrad the Sailor, this Looney Tune where they're on a ship, at one point, all of the gobs are singing the Song of the Marines. And it's all of the gobs. What it really is on the soundtrack is four guys. It's the Sportsman's Quartet. Damn, could they sing. Listen to this perfect velvety rendition of a song that you probably will have heard before. You just didn't know that it was called Song of the Marines. Over the sea, let's go, men. Listen to these guys sing it in this Looney Tune where you can forget how good the soundtrack is because you're enjoying just the silliness of what Looney Tunes are. Over the sea, let's go, men. 
We're shoving right off, we're shoving right off again. Nobody knows where or when. We're shoving right off, we're shoving right off again. We're leaving today. It's anchors away. Sally and Sue, don't be blue. We'll just be gone for years and years and then. We're shoving right off for home. Okay, but the words alone would not make this case because language is more than words. It could be maybe that these people came and sprinkled Proto-Germanic with some words, but that wouldn't change the nature of the language. It wouldn't be as interesting a story. So as I always try to get across on this show, language is more than just buckets of words. It's also how you put the words together. And if the Phoenicians had this effect, or if somebody had this effect, it was not only on collections of words, but how you put them together, what you do to or with the words to actually express thoughts. And so, for example, English, English and its verbs. English is weird verbs. I run right now. Yesterday I run. No, I ran. So the consonants stay the same, but you change the vowel. Today I sink. Yesterday I sank. And that means that if I'm on the boat going down, then I have sunk. Sink, sank, sunk. Those are called our strong verbs for reasons that need not concern us. But those are our irregular verbs. And the way they're irregular is that a vowel changes. That's not just English, that's the Germanic family. And so in German, you know, today I drink, ich trinke, and then yesterday I tank, and so on. Same thing, when you learn German, you find that that's one thing that gives an English speaker something to grab onto. It's true in Dutch, Swedish, and all of them. So you have that vowel change. It's called oblaut, if you want to have a term, but that's an ugly word, so I'm not going to use it too much. But you have that vowel change to indicate a change in tense. Specifically, it's how we do our past tense and our particle. Now, you know, that's kind of odd. It's not odd that you have a vowel change instead of an ending to put something in the past, for example. So for those of us who know some Spanish, think about the verb tener for to have. And so there are all sorts of vowel changes that you have to master to actually manipulate it. And so I have yo tengo, but he has el tiene, and then he had his tuvo. But that's just the thing. It's more than just changing the vowel that you have to deal with in Spanish. So if it's he has tiene, and then he had tuvo, well, it's not just that the ye went to the u, but you also have this v that comes in, etc. So it's not just the vowel changes in a language like Spanish or other Indo-European languages. Indo-European languages in general have oblaut, but it's the way it's done in Germanic that's interesting. Have you ever learned any other language where in order to put something into the past, all you do is fiddle with the vowel? And you know, if you went to Hebrew school or if you speak a Semitic language, then you know exactly what I mean. In Hebrew, Israeli Hebrew, he writes, kotev, kotev, fine. But then he wrote, that's katav. So the K, T, and the V stayed the same. K, T, V, they're from on high. It's those vowels skittering around in between them that end up changing. So from kotev to 
katav. And so, for example, you know, I speak, like I'm pretending to speak Hebrew, ani medaber. And so, I speak medaber. Ignore the medaber. So that's speak. But then, if I spoke, it's di-ber. So once again, it's a vowel change. It's not that you say something like dabered or something like that. Well, you know, that business of the vowels moving around, although, of course, Hebrew does have suffixes and things that get involved, but still, that fundamental quality of vowels moving around, and often that's all you have to do, that's something that's interestingly reminiscent of the way you do these things in Germanic languages. And it's interesting that only Germanic languages are the ones that, for some reason, do it in that Near Eastern way. It's as if, basically, somebody who spoke a language, like Phoenician, learned Proto-Germanic, but they didn't learn it completely, and probably over time they started speaking this Proto-Germanic in the way that a Phoenician would want to. And so they picked up on the fact that Proto-Germanic had vowel changes, like any Indo-European language does, but they tidied it up, they made it more familiar, and so they started using these Germanic verbs in a way that felt comfortable to a Phoenician. And here we are. And so Germanic has these sort of Semitic-y, Phoenician-y verbs, and nobody would know why now, but just maybe it was because of something like that. And there's another way that Germanic languages feel like somebody else learned them and kind of screwed things up. And that's more with the verbs. And what it is, is that in Germanic languages, there really aren't that many, say, suffixes and tables to learn for how to make your verbs work. I know that that's part of what always got me as an English-speaking language head. It's that you go to some other language, and you know, for Spanish, you've got hablo, hablas, habla, hablamos, hablais, hablan. You've got all these endings to remember. It's like your, your erector set, because English is so poor in things like that. Now, from English, if you move over to German, you find more, but even there, there isn't all that much. So it's basically present past and participles if you're talking about endings. And so I'm waiting. Ich warte. Okay. You're waiting. Du wartest. Okay. He waits. You know, er wartet. Okay. And then if it's plural, we wait. Wir warten. Okay. So, uh, ist, ut, un. But in German, if you think about it, what else? You know, you've got some present tense endings and you've got some past tense stuff, but then that's it. Why isn't there a whole table in German of future tense endings? That's what other European languages seem to do. That's what languages around the world seem to do so often. Where Where's the list of, of future tense endings? But no, you don't get that. So in Spanish, the, one of the challenges is all those different kinds of endings you have to learn to indicate all sorts of different shades. It's a language full of endings and tables of endings and then irregularities of the endings. So, you know, yo hablo, I'm talking... Now, then in the past, yo hablé. Well, you have to know all those endings, and not just in the first person singular, but, you know, whole whole shebang. Imperfect, I was speaking, of course. They have to make a difference there. Hablaba. Can you imagine in English if we had a suffix to make that distinction? In the future, hablaré. We say, I shall speak, or I'm gonna speak. Or we just say, I speak tomorrow. We really can't be bothered. But in a normal Indo-European language, hablaré. And, of course, that's just one ending. Conditional, hablaría. No would with, you know, an L sitting in there. Wold, none of that. 
hablaría. You have ending, subjunctive. And so if I were to speak, yo hable. You just have to know. You know, it, always at the end of the year, you don't quite get to the end of the textbook. But, you know, there's an imperfect subjunctive. You know, hablase. All that stuff. And that is normal. Proto-Germanic is odd in having so little of that kind of thing. What we do in English is we use little separate words to indicate those things. But it's not really the family style of Indo-European. And once again, when you see things like that in a language, often it's because somebody learned it from the outside and made it a little easier, made it a little more transparent. So in English, instead of having a whole bunch of endings to indicate the future, which then inevitably, because language gets messed up, would get all smushed and irregular over time, instead of that, we just have this will and this going to business, which actually only came in four or five hundred years ago. It's as if at some point, and it would have been with this, you know, granddaddy Germanic language, somebody learned it incompletely. It's like somebody was being given pre-Germanic, you know, over Duolingo or something something like that. And they got it, but they got rid of a lot of the bells and whistles that make language learning hard because, you know, they could get away with it. And make no mistake, for the language heads among you, yes, to an extent, languages simplify over time. But I did a show way back that if you haven't been listening for a while, you might not know of where I talked about the fact that it is not true that it is natural to language to just keep getting simpler. That's a myth that's based partly on a kind of Eurocentrism and partly on just innocent aspects of the fact that fish don't know they're wet and we are fish and we speak a language like English. But it's not normal for a language to just keep on shedding things. Because if you think about it, if human language has been around for at least 300,000 years and maybe 2 million, then if all language did was get simpler, then there wouldn't be any languages now. We'd all just be kind of lollygagging on the ground. Languages get simpler while at the same time randomly developing new complications. So, for example, a language like Russian and its Slavic friends, that's another descendant of the original Ukraine Proto-Indo-European language. Proto-Indo-European, as we reconstruct it, was just jangling with the sorts of things that make a language hard to learn. Now, of course, Russian has lost some of them, but gained others. And so although Russian doesn't have, for example, the elaborate past tense marking that an earlier version of it would have had, well, for goodness sake, just the verbs about moving in a language like Russian, are so subtle and so complicated. And then, of course, irregular on top of that. It's almost like, you know, Stalin did this just to make life hard for people. They are so hard that they're, it's virtually unlearnable without dealing with them in context. And so that's how language change happens. You develop complexities that almost, in a way, balance out the things that are getting simpler. Proto-Germanic didn't do that. Proto-Germanic seems to have really taken a hit. It's like a real bite out of what Indo-Europeanness is. And so it's one more indication. So first of all, it really is specifically Phoenician-y that you have things like run, ran, to the extent that you have it in Germanic. And then also just the verbs in general seem like somebody didn't feel like learning real Proto-Indo-European verbs and made them easier. And as to who that would have been, given the evidence that we already have from the shape of a lot of the lost words, plus the business of run-ran, we wonder if it was the Phoenicians. Talking about language acquired by someone adult, I am going to give you, because it makes me think of, and yes, this is slightly random, Lida Roberti. She was a 
Polish singer back in the 20s and 30s who became briefly famous in the United States. And you know what? Because it was that long ago and you've got the sound quality, I'm not going to play you Lida Roberti, but her big song, one of her big songs was called My Cousin in Milwaukee. She sang it in a very cute way. And you know, it's not a great song, but it was masterfully arranged for Ella Fitzgerald by Nelson Riddle in the 50s. And this should be heard, just what this man did with this rather minor song. This is Ella Fitzgerald singing My Cousin in Milwaukee, which is originally from a 1933 George and Ira Gershwin musical called Pardon My English. Here it goes. Once I visited my cousin in Milwaukee, USA. She got boyfriends by the dozen when she sang in a low-down way. She was a positive sensation. The songs that she sang would never miss. My cousin was my inspiration. That's how I got like this. I got a cousin in Milwaukee. She's got a voice so squawky. And though she's tall and kind of gawky, oh, how she gets the men. Her singing isn't operatic. It's got a lot of static. What makes your heart get acrobatic? Nine times out of ten. When she sings hot, you can't be solemn. It sends the shivers up and down your spinal column. When she sings blue, the men shout, what stuff? That baby is hot. You hear how in the arrangement, there's that thing going on on the xylophone when she sings spinal column. Mike, play that again. When she sings hot, you can't be solemn. It sends the shivers up and down your spinal column. In any case, imagine that song sung by somebody with a really thick, and I hate to say it, but adorable, in her case, Polish accent. You know, folks, the media has suffered because of you-know-what since March, and Slate is no exception, and therefore I find it particularly important to mention that you could, for a nominal fee, be getting a heightened experience, such as it is, with Lexicon Valley, not to mention other Slate podcasts. Specifically, I refer to Slate Plus. If you got Slate Plus for that nominal fee, then for one thing, you wouldn't have to listen to me doing this or any ads, nor would you have to listen to those mysterious other people doing ads on the show. No ads. You would just listen for the substance, and that's all you would have. Plus, you'd get something extra. You'd get a tag at the end. It would be like Sanford and Son or Roseanne. There's this little bit that I do, the Slate Plus segment, that sometimes continues what the episode has been about just as often. It's just some random thing that grabbed me probably the day before I laid down the recording. But you don't get to hear that unless you get Slate Plus. And it wouldn't only be for my show. Why should you pay even a nominal fee for extra bits of my show and and ads? But it would be for all of Slate's wonderful podcast. And, you know, quite honestly, you know, we need your money. And so if you give this nominal fee, you really do get something back, which is that you get more show 
and no ads. So I highly recommend that you go to slate.com slash lexicon plus and get the slate plus feature. You'll be glad you did. Okay, what else that's specifically Phoenician? Well, there is something else, and this is going to take us into the archives. We're talking about Old High German. And there is a pagan incantation that survives from roughly the 900s AD. It's called the Merseburg Charm. In this incantation, there is this strange little mention of the god Balder. And if you're a fan of Norse Edda type stuff, then that sounds familiar, the god Balder. But then just before that, he's mentioned under an alternate name as Fol. P-H-O-L. Fole. So Balder and Fole. Well, what's going on with Balder and Fole? Well, for one thing, Baal is a Phoenician god. And long ago, it isn't talked about as much now, but certainly in the 19th century and into the 20th century, there were people who remarked a lot upon similarities between Middle Eastern, Near Eastern religions and Germanic and Nordic religions. And the question is, why? Well, you know, Baal is one of these Semitic gods. And now here in the Merseburg charm, we have, and elsewhere in early Germanic sources, you have Balder. And then this foal. Well, what's foal? Well, what's interesting is that foal actually can be seen as tracing, again, to Phoenician and Semitic. So take foal. We know about how sounds change in, for example, Germanic languages. And if you've got a f, then in earlier German than Old High German, sorry to take you there, that's as far back as we're going to go, the f is a p. And we know that if you go even further back, based on comparing Germanic languages and Indo-European languages, that a p was a b. So foal, originally, if we're going to take it piece by piece, we know it would have actually been something like bowl, okay? But then, the O. If you've got an O in Old High German, then in earlier German, that O was an A. The A changed to O. That was regular. You see that in lots and lots of words. And so that means that the original word wasn't only not foal, but bowl, but it would have been, yeah, see, Baal. So that foal is Baal in Old High German. That's why there's this mysterious foal. Balder is more preserved, but even there, even there, why Balder? What is that? You know, it's not about somebody who doesn't have hair. You know, in Phoenician, great god is Baal Adir. Baal Adir. Sometimes they would write it as one word, Balidir. And then sometimes you get an even shorter version, Baldir. And so then here in this old high German document, you've got Balder. It's very interesting how these things go. And what it means is that Fol and Balder are really the same word. Fol is Germanic-speaking people having taken up this word, Baal, and made it their own. It's as if these Phoenician travelers, if this actually happened, also imposed a religious system and imposed it deeply enough that foal is Baal spoken in their language over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, such that now it's genuinely a Germanic term. Then Balder, 
persists alongside as what you can call a borrowing that keeps more of its own counsel. But this is just one more piece of evidence that something was going on that we are not told about. Finally, there is something else that is possibly Phoenician-y about early Germanic language, and it's about writing, which I know you all enjoy, and I do too. And it's this aspect of it, actually, that made me do this show. Because some of you may know that in my book, Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, which is one of my favorites, partly just because of the physical package, it's such a pretty little book. In that book, I discussed this business of Phoenician influence on early Germanic. And I discuss it in a parenthetical and tentative way, but I say that it's all very interesting. So it's not that this is brand new to me, but the case has been fleshed out somewhat since. And one of the ways it's been fleshed out is with this business of the writing. And specifically, I refer to the runes. The runes, that is early Germanic's alphabet. And it's carved on bones and it's written on stones. (laughs) That sounds like Dr. Seuss. And they're very pretty and they look charmingly primitive because, you know, you don't want to do too much horizontal, etc. It's the runes are great. And the idea about where the runes came from is that they would have been based on other alphabets being developed and spread from the South in Europe. And so you would think, given when the runes come about, that they would have been adopted from, say, the Greeks, who developed an alphabet with vowels for the first time down in Greece. Or Etruscan, on the spit of land that is now Italy, they had a similar alphabet and they got around more than we might think today, given that they're gone. So you would think that these Viking goth types would have gotten their runes from the often sociologically dominant people down south. But the thing is, there are aspects of the runes that seem like they came via a different route. And yes, I said route. I'm from Philadelphia. No, no route. And that is something that you can probably already figure out. You can know where this is going. Here's why. The runes have an alternate name, the Futhark. F-U-T-H-A-R-K, the Futhark. And damn, that's an ugly word. But why they're called that is because the first letters are the equivalent of F-U-F-A-R-K, the Futhark. Well, the question is why? What happened to something like A, B, C, D? I mean, that's how alphabets work. And there are variations, but you're certainly supposed to begin with A. You see that in Greek, Hebrew, A, B, and then, well, maybe, you know, C is complicated, but then you're supposed to have D, probably, and G in there. What in hell is F, U, F, A, R, K? That's like something somebody made up. Well, you know, it might not be random, the Futhark. It's the funniest thing. There are weird parallels between the Futhark and the way the Phoenicians did it. Not the Greeks and the Etruscans who got it from the Phoenicians, but directly how the Phoenicians did it. So, for example, in Semitic languages, the letters are named after actual things. So, for us, we don't know what an A or a B or a D or a G are, or if those things happen to be something, it's an accident. So, yes, a B is that thing that flies around, but that's not what the letter is supposed to be. But in Semitic languages, the letters have names of actual things. In Hebrew, you've got Aleph, and that's originally an ox, and Phoenicians the same way. And so the letters begin by being ox, 
house, that's the beta one, and then camel, except it's a G, more like gimel, but camel, door, window, that's the names of the letters. The runes are like that too. It's not like that in Greek and Etruscan. You just have names like the ones that we have, these little bits of stuff. But, you know, you have ox house, camel, door, window for Phoenician. For the runes, you have similar actual names of things. It's roughly ox, then roughly some other kind of ox, then giant, god, journey, believe it or not, ulcer, gift. That is how the futharks are named. So there's a parallelism right there. It's as if they were getting it straight from the mouths of the Phoenicians rather than secondhand from the Greeks. And then, this is the funniest thing. You can look at the Phoenician letters and you can actually see how somebody maybe would have come up with F-U-T-H-A-R-K. So, for example, the Phoenician letters begin with what we would think of as A, B, G, D, and H. You can just use that, A, B, G, D, and H. Now, why would the runes start with F, of all things? Well, the Phoenician A, actually the A is Aleph, which is about an ox. That's what it is. It looks like one. If you turn an uppercase A around, it's an ox. Well, you know, F is the first letter of the word for cattle in early Germanic. It would be Fehu. And so they are, you know, watching how Phoenicians write things down, and the Phoenicians, their first letter is an ox head. Well, that would mean that for a rune person, then you're going to start your alphabet with an F, because for them, that word was fehu. Fehu later became fee, talking about animals and transactions and selling them and killing them and money, etc. And so, fehu, that would explain that. There you go. Next is the Phoenician for B. Now, in Phoenician, B had come to be pronounced more like a V, but a V where you don't even have that much bite. It's more like a, it's that sound that you learn to make in Spanish that's quote-unquote in between a B and a V, and you never feel like you're doing it right. So, a vase is a faso, that sort of thing. So, B had become V. That V, if anything, sounds like a W, especially if you're not used to making the sound. And the thing is, Phoenician already had a real W. And these rune people didn't really need this particular W. And so what it looks like is that the rune people heard this W sound. And actually, Phoenician's W was about six or seven steps down in their alphabet. The runic people put that symbol down there. That's where it was in the Futhark. And so they heard this W and they figured, well, okay, we're going to just put that down there where they have their W. And that took care of that. So the Phoenician B ended up being reclassified and put where a sound a lot like it already was. So that took care of that. So A, B, then G. Okay, so the Futhark has U and the Phoenicians have G. How does that become an U? Well, G in Phoenician, sounds are always changing. It had become G, so you say G, then you kind of pull away a little bit. G sounds soften. And then it becomes just a little whiff. G, G. We call that an approximant in linguistics. And so G, G, fricative, and then G, G, that's an approximant. That, G, really, back there, you just kind of go G. That, if you do that over and over and over, can start feeling like a U, especially if you go G, G. You would have seen that the Phoenicians, for this G, they use a camel 
Gimel. It's a camel. You don't have any camels on the neck of Denmark. What you have is various variations that any human beings in most places seem to have on cattle. That would have been what we call an Arach in this area. What they called it was an Uruz. So next thing you know, your second letter is an U, partly because G had come to sound kind of like it, and partly because your equivalent of the animal they're using is one whose name begins with U. It could have been either one of those things or those things together. But it's a plausible supposition, especially when you consider that next in the Phoenician alphabet was D. D also, as time goes by often, will soften D, the, and then th. There's a relationship between d and th. They are close in the mouth. And so if d goes to the, which it did in Phoenician, th is the next step, especially if you're a Germanic language that likes to make things a little bit harder. And so th. So we already got th, u, and th. Now then why, why ah? Well, again, you have to think about how language changes for this to make any sense. But Phoenician had h here what we call H. It would have been hey in Phoenician. Okay. But the Phoenician alphabet didn't bother with vowels. Many of you will be familiar with that from Arabic and Hebrew now, where the writing systems only convey the vowels approximately unless you use little points and you're being very specific. But ordinarily, you're expected to just kind of guess a lot of what the vowels are. Phoenician was like that. Semitic languages start out being written in that way. Well, these early Germanic people wanted there to be vowels. A vowelless alphabet would not have been as suitable for Germanic languages as it is for Semitic languages. And so here they have hey. They want something for A, for example. Hey seems to be the closest thing. And so they see this thing down here, this this hey, and they figure, well, why don't we make that A? Because we need an A. And then, as time went by, in Germanic languages, A became A. We know that independently. But that would mean that you get F, U, F, and then A. And if it sounds a little little contingent to imagine A going to A, it's actually documented, and it's actually plausible. And so, for example, in Southern American English, you might have A pronounced more like I. So somebody might say, not wade, but wide, wade, but wide, or not grace, but grice, grace, but grice. And you know the example that I'm going to use for this is Grace Under Fire. This was a very nice sitcom that the comedian Brett Butler did back in the 90s. It ran about five years. I have always missed it. And my favorite thing on it was the actress Julie White. And Julie White did this Nadine character that had a Southern accent. And always in my head is the way she would say her boyfriend Wade's name is White, and also Grace is Grice. Listen to her in one episode where she is doing that pronunciation. Nadine, are you all right, girl? What? Oh, I'm okay. It's just, you know, that baby we've been talking about? Well, I'm having it. It's about damn time. Well, congratulations. What can I do? What okay, I do? listen, wait. He just drove off. I think we can catch him. You can page him. Okay. He's going to go work undercover. Well, I'll page him, but it better be important. <laughs> Gee, I bet Wade won't hear that. Oh, my God, Grace. I'll drive you. It'll be cool, and we'll just keep this. So as random as that may seem, that is how an A can become an A. 
So that happened long before Julie White existed in Germanic languages. And that means that people first would have thought, well, we are going to, well, I don't know what an early Germanic accent would be, but they decided we're going to use this hey as just a. And then over time, it became ah. And it wasn't much time because next thing you know, you have F. U, I would sound like I'm about to start cursing. F, U, the T-H, and the ah. One can go on, and I'm not going to go on because that would be a whole show and, frankly, a stunningly boring one. But there's a possible reason why it's F, U, F, ah, R, K. It might not be random. Futhark actually makes sense as how early Germanic speakers who wanted a writing system would have interpreted the Phoenician alphabet if they had no concern with whether or not their order was going to make sense to us today. Oh, you know what? Remember my cousin from Milwaukee and I said that the original singer of it in the musical that it debuted in had a very charming accent? Well, you know, she was recorded, Lida Roberti. Let's just hear her singing a little bit of My Cousin in Milwaukee because she, well, I hate to say it, but she was adorable. Her whole career was based on how much fun it was to listen to her accent. And I know that's essentializing her a little bit, but mm, My Cousin in Milwaukee listened to her in 1933 singing. Listen to those sexy H's. Hot, hot. Here it is. I got the cousin from Milwaukee. She's got the voice so squawky. And though she's tall and kind of cocky, oh, she gets the men. Her singing is an operatic. It's got a lot of static. It makes your heart get acrobatic. Nine times out of ten. When she sings hot, you can't be solemn. It sends the shivers up and down your spinal column. When she sings blue, the men shut what stuff. That baby is hot stuff. So if you like the way I sing song. In any case, I find this business about Germanic being deeply impacted by a Semitic language of the Near East. Intriguing. For me, the case is at this point just on the cusp between fun to think about and time to call it for real. And, you know, maybe it'll just stay that way, but I wanted to share my toys. There's a story of English, and I'm beginning to think that it is increasingly compelling that that story is connected to these Phoenicians sailing all the way from the Near East up around Europe to the little neck of Denmark and creating a great deal of the language that I'm speaking right now. If you want to know more, the source at this point is a book called The Carthaginian North Semitic Influence on Early Germanic. And you know, I'm not sure that this is a book you'd want to take to the beach. This is very much an academic book. I don't know if you want to read it, but if you do, it's by Theo Venemon and Robert Milehammer. And it's written relatively clearly. It would probably take most of you into more detail than you wanted. And so I tried to give you what I think the takeaways are from the book. But this is a really interesting thesis that at least deserves to be heard. Before we go out, I want to share something that Alexander Ling sent me. And, you know, while 
we are making fun of the way people render our language, which is a very risky thing, but in small doses, I think we can understand where it comes from, that it comes from affection and even respect, is this is some Chinglish. And you know, the difference between English and Chinese is so vast that I'm amazed that anybody who speaks Chinese learns English, just as I'm amazed that anybody who speaks English learns Chinese, since I, for example, can't. But this means that Chinglish can be really, really funny. And Alexander Ling sent me something from a menu, and it was describing what a shrimp is, and it's clear that whoever wrote this basically just tried to use Google Translate. And what they came up with was just a wonderful passage that I think ought to be transcribed as literature for the ages. Here's what a shrimp is in Chinglish. Shrimp is a life in the water long animal, belong to arthropods, crustaceans of many types, including shrimp, 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 crayfish, shrimp, prawns, shrimp, prawns, lobster, and other shrimp, this time shrimp is spelled with a capital S, with high therapeutic value and used in Chinese herbal medicines. <laughs> so you could tell that the person didn't check what they came up with and Google Translate or whatever they had didn't have the detailed words for things like langoustines, etc. So it's just shrimp, shrimp, and shrimp. So shrimp is a life in the water long animal. It life's in the water and it's a long animal. In any case, we're not going to go out on that. I think we should go out on something fun, something that's been rattling around in my mind for a week for various reasons. This is not The Spinners, which is what I usually put here when I can't think of anything else. This is Dionne Warwick in The Spinners. This is Then Came You. I am eight years old. Again, I remember this song playing in the car in my parents' Chevrolet Caprice with the soft seats with the black cloth. This is Then Came You. What a catchy song. at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. That we can say, by the way, then came you instead of then you came is also possibly Phoenician, but the only way you can find out why is to subscribe to Slate Plus today. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I'm John McWhorter. I'm so darn proud of you.